genuine question now. Go ahead. When was the last time you experienced decent, not even like exceptional, just decent customer service? Oh, long time ago. I mean, there's no secret formula for it yet. What we do know is that most companies seem to be pretty bad at it. But not you, my friend, not you, listener. Oh, no. You can create an amazing customer service experience when you use the brand new service hub from HubSpot. Yep, this all-new service hub from HubSpot brings customer service and support together in one simple but powerful platform so you can deliver the best experience possible. And of course, it's powered by AI, not Al, AI, meaning your team can automate those tedious tickets from people who've clearly not read your frequently asked questions. Pain in the backside, aren't they? Oh, and by the way, organizations using HubSpot Service Hub are resolving tickets 13 times faster, helping them to close 42% more tickets per day. That means increasing retention by more than 80%. Thank you, people at HubSpot who, who did the maths on that one, because I wouldn't be able to. I love a bit of data. Did you also know, Al, that it consolidates your entire internal knowledge base into one place? So no matter who is working on support, they'll have the answers at their fingertips. I did know that because I wrote that for you. Well, there you have it. Stand out from the crowd and migrate to HubSpot Service Hub today. Visit HubSpot.com slash service and learn how this all-new solution can help you deliver for your customers. Elderly man comes up to me crying. He hocks me and he says, you saved my life. And I was kind of baffled because I'd never seen the person before. I didn't know what this was all about. Hello and welcome to the Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture podcast brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. My name is Leanne. I'm a business psychologist. My name is Al and I'm a business owner. We are here to help you simplify the science of people and create amazing workplace cultures. Yeah, and you should definitely be grateful that Leanne's here today because she's not very well. <laughs> you were in bed all day yesterday, weren't you? I was. I was. I'm not ill very often, but when I am, it seems to like i save it all up for just one really bad cold um, yeah. so yeah apologies if i'm a bit bunged up but you know i'm here the show must go on i think it sounds sexy i think i like it when you sound bunged up i think thank you I think. <laughs> weird so al what are we talking about today very very excited today we've got martin lindstrom on the on the pod um he's just like the most famous guy in the world uh, he's <laughs> danish author he has been named one of the top 50 management thinkers in the world his most recent book the ministry of common sense which is how to eliminate bureaucratic red tape bad excuses and corporate bullshit it's right up our street just even well probably because he swears a little bit in it which is obviously very much <laughs> up our street so we're going to be bringing you this exclusive interview which leanne did with martin um a little bit later on in a few minutes but first it's our favorite time of the week it's the news roundup. Cue the jingle. Okay, Lee, what you got? I have a new word. New word alert. Coffee badging. Normally, I don't know what this is because it's sprung on me, but I do know what this is because I sent it to Leanne earlier this week. So tell us, what does coffee badging mean? And You tell me, Al, you tell me. So coffee badging is, from my understanding, is, is when you get a badge for getting a coffee. For example, if you've got this sort of hybrid situation um, at work where you can work from home some days and work in the office other days then you get a badge by coming in for a coffee and so you turn up have a coffee everyone goes oh yeah martin's coming up that's a bad example because martin's our guest jeff's coming oh he's always here isn't he yeah good lad jeff and then you slip out the back door when no one's looking and go back home get your pajamas on and watch a bit of netflix and do some work while you're watching netflix how far am i away from that <laughs> yeah quite right i'm not sure about the, the netflix thing i think that's why people are being called back into the office <laughs> this lack of trust so i'm not sure i can endorse that part of the message but in terms of definition yeah that is what coffee badging is basically going into the office long enough to have a coffee see your colleagues get that badge that you've attended the office that day and go back home it was quite an interesting article was it in forbes i can remember was it forbes sounds forbes like journal? yeah i think it was forbes, forbes. yeah sounds about right yeah, so they were quoting some research. Apparently, 58% of hybrid workers are coffee badging, while another 8% said they haven't been coffee badging, but would like to try it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's that same old argument, isn't it? Is, it? is it the cost of living crisis? Is it better to work at home, at the office? You know, why don't people want to come into a fixed place of work? And it could be cost. It could be the cost of the commute. It could be the cost of childcare, pet care. 
Then you've got the hidden costs like office attire. You know, you can wear the same outfit every day at home and no one's going to notice or judge you. And then, of course, there's the added time. You know, 61% of workers spend up to an hour commuting each day and 20% spend up to two hours. Wow. You know, when you add that up over a week, that's a lot. That's pretty much season one and two of Sopranos, I think. (laughs) Indeed. Uh, I also saw another, there's a great Twitter account called Fesshole. And it's all about confessing. Um, and the whole thing is it's a, anonymous confessions. And I saw this confession the other day, which is very similar to this. And this guy says, I've collected all the, a huge jar of change over the last five years from home. So what I do is I go into the office, I say hello to everyone, I go to the vending machine, put my two peas in, and then press the press the cancel button, the return button, and I get a quid back out. Oh, nice. So he says, I've got about 40 quid left, and then they're never going to see him in the office ever again. And people <laughs> think that he's coming in to say hello, and he's not, he's just coming in to change. Anyway, what else we got, Lee? Well, it is event season, Al. I feel like we have two event seasons. Like this kind of run up to Christmas and usually in the spring. I think everyone just kind of hibernates January, February, March, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, event season is continuing in full swing. And once again, we have another event to tell you about. Al and I have been invited to speak. We are going to be speakers. We'll be professional and everything. I don't think I can swear on this one. No, you can't. It is a virtual event this Saturday, 7th of October, called Burnout, the Silent Pandemic, hosted by Tiffany Castagno, founder of CEPHR, and Minachki Ier, founder of North Star Solutions and Services. It's a cool event. It's the first of a three-part series to support leaders and others navigate and prevent burnout so we will be there leading the first session which is quite exciting um i'm a little bit nervous about putting out in front of that type of audience so we'll see how that goes but i'm sure it'll be fine and the november one you'll probably be interested in too as it is led by sally clark who featured on our burnout episode so yes join us saturday 7th of october 10 a.m new york time 3 p.m UK time where Al and I will share our approach to burnout and creating amazing workplaces in which people experience positive well-being. We'll also answer all and any of the questions that you have, whether they are related to burnout, well-being or indeed something else. Okay, we've got one last piece of news about uh, events, do we not, Leanne? Yes, we Have we mentioned do. this before? Have we mentioned that we are the official podcast of the Sixth Mad World Summit this October? I believe we I'm, have. I'm not sure we've mentioned it enough, though. <laughs> so let's mention it one more time. So, yes, we have been invited to the Sixth Annual Mad World Summit happening October 12th in central London in the UK. We will be interviewing some of the event speakers from some incredible organisations, including the Royal Mail, L'Oreal, IBM, just to name but a few. There is still time to register your tickets and come along to the event and meet Al and I and all the incredible speakers or if you can't make it don't worry we will be bringing you all the exclusive content but to be honest you probably do want to make it we're good but there's only so much we can fit into a podcast episode you know it's a full packed day of events workshops networking opportunities there is so much so rather than me sit here and try and explain everything i spoke to the global head of content at make a difference media the company that hosts the mad world summit claire farrow claire over to you the mad world summit's been around this is its sixth year um and mad stands for make a difference Uh, we're all about um helping employers support the um mental health and well-being of their employees and we also look at how workplace cultures can improve to to do that um so yeah we've got a fantastic lineup of speakers Uh, we think we've got 126 speakers something like that um this year Uh, so it's bigger than ever um we've also co-located the de and i symposium this year alongside Mad World Summit. Um, and that's because we're recognizing how um, interlinked DEI and well-being are moving forwards. So um, that's just a quick overview of, of, of what the event's all about. So um, I think there's a few things that make it different. Um, one is that we're very focused on sort of practical solutions. Um, so, you know, it's it's sort of where you go to really hear about best practice, share ideas and experiences with people from across different sectors in, in real time. Um, and, you know, we have lots of, of opportunities to do that, like round tables and, you know, coffee breaks and all the usual networking as well. Um, the other thing that really sets us apart is the, the energy of the event. I mean, people often talk about what the great kind of positive energy um, that, that we have. And, and actually, to be fair, that's a lot of that is down to our co-founders, Simon Berger, 
and uh, Mark Pigou. Um, and they kind of recognised right from the outset that this needed to be something that would really capture people's hearts and minds. It really is going to be an awesome event and some hugely valuable insights and lessons are going to be really applicable to smaller businesses too. Okay, Lee, let's get on to our guest, Martin Lindstrom. Martin is a Danish author, as I said, a Time Magazine Influential 100 honoree. Never seen that word before, Leanne. Just wrote, you wrote it in the script. I'm going to say it, but I don't know what it means. Uh, he has written eight books, including Small Data, the tiny clues that uncover huge trends, Biology, Truth and Lies About Why We Buy. Nice title, by the way there, Martin. Good choice on that word. Interesting, that was the first book I bought uh, by Martin uh, before I even knew who he was. Um, and then, the, obviously, the one we're talking about today, the Ministry of Common Sense, uh, which is the focus of what we're talking about today. He's the founder and CEO of Lindstrom Company, which is the world's largest business and culture transformation company. And he's worked with some pretty big names, Standard Charter, Burger King. Oh, I could do with a Burger King right now. Swiss Airlines. And many, many more. So let's go meet Martin and hear a bit more about his work. I have been working with branding since I was 12 years of age. Can you believe it? And I realized at some point that when you want to transform organizations, um, you can't just put makeup on them. You actually have to go deeper. And that depth basically means that I have to understand the culture. And the culture, as you know, increasingly is collapsing around the world. So we started to do an enormous amount of work understanding the psychology of why we behave the way we do, not just when it comes to the consumer, but also to, to when it comes to the employees. So what I'm doing is I'm helping companies to transform the brands, the culture and their businesses. And we both look into brands and into to culture. Um, I've written eight books, eight New York Times best-selling books, which have been translated into more than 60 languages, which is crazy. And then I help the who's who of brands around the world, everything from Uber to Google to Coca-Cola and Nestle and all these brands. So Martin's latest book, which I have here, is called The Ministry of Common Sense, How to Eliminate Bureaucratic Red Tape, Bad Excuses and Corporate Bullshit. It is brilliant. I read it and then I was like, do you know what? This would make a brilliant audio book because the narrative that, that Martin puts in with his stories and his tone is just brilliant. They do have an audio book. It's not read by Martin. It's read by somebody else, but it is hilarious i'm not sure i've ever read a business book before that's made me laugh out loud so highly recommend that the ministry of common sense is dedicated to restoring logic and sanity in organizations that are being crippled by pointless rules martin asks what happened to common sense and shows readers how they can get it back if you've ever rolled your eyes at something that just doesn't make sense in your workplace i think we all have this is the book for you brilliant so in this episode we're going to lead you through how you can start making your own ministry of sense in your business to transform it um, and your culture we'll be asking martin five key questions so we're going to say what is corporate bullshit and what businesses are affected two how to audit your business for corporate bullshit number three the critical role of purpose purpose is a huge one for us the surprising role of empathy is number four and number five is martin's hot take on the remote versus on-site argument so, Leanne, shall we crack on with that first one, which is, what is corporate bullshit? Let's be honest, we've all experienced it. Um, I haven't worked in, in a company for like 20 years, but even back then, I remember things like uh, you get locked out of your computer and then you contact the IT department and they say, oh, just go on our website and there's some more information on that. I'm locked out. That's ridiculous. Um, being CC'd into like email threads where there's six and a half thousand other people on there. You're like, Why? We still get that one. We might not be in, in a, an organization, but we still get that. <laughs> oh, we, we had a conversation this week and I'm like, there are 17 people on this email thread. If I was one of those 17, I'd be really pissed off. Mm -hmm. So Martin believes that leaders don't usually think there's much corporate bullshit in their organizations, but the actual number is off the charts. And he's seen a lot of this firsthand. I actually remember when I went into the office of Standard Chartered Bank, uh, this lovely bank and lovely people in there. And for the American audience, it's one of the 10th largest banks in the world. And I went up to a lady which was responsible for creating new regulations and guidelines in the company. And as she was talking, I flicked through these amazing books she's created with, I know, thousands of laws and guidelines and God knows what. And I stopped at one and it talked about how every contract you do has to be sent by fax as well. I said, do you have a fax machine? She said, no, I don't have a fax machine. So why do you ask people to do this? 
said, well, that's an old one, but having you, why don't you remove it? She said, I'm only paid to create new rules. I'm not paid to remove them once they're not relevant anymore. Now that changed later on. And, and in the case of Standard Charter Bank, we actually started up what is called the Ministry of Common Sense. It's the first ever in the world where literally we have a whole team full time internally in the bank just to remove stupidities and nonsense. And this has been up running now for four years, we removed thousands of stupidities in there. And it all came back to the fact that when you work in these big corporations, there's a lot of BS going through this system. And my mission is to remove that. So in his book, Martin defines common sense as the antidote to corporate bullshit and the sum total of our ability to separate right from wrong, efficient from inefficient, valuable from worthless, orderly from sloppy, mature from childish, the list goes on. It is a very funny book. His point is common sense is practical. Common sense is reasonable. It's dynamic. It's interactive. It's obvious or rather it should be obvious. And when common sense is in place, it leads to a sense of happiness, productivity, and improved quality of life. The question I need to ask as a small business owner is, this, is this just the giants? Is this the IBM that have this corporate bullshit? Or do we have it as well in our in, in like any kind of business? Martin explains that time is the key factor here. The longer a company has been around, the more bureaucracy you have. Uh, mainly because a company which... Let's just go back in time. If, if you are a small startup, let me give you an example. There's these two kids. They have this wonderful evening. They are smoking weeds in the dorm room and they take a lot of photos. They post them online. And the day after, mom and dad is noticing these photos. And of course, panic breaks through. Um, and they meet up and they say, oh, I wish we could retract those photos. Now, that became the foundation for Snapchat, today a $50 billion company. That was founded based on these kids feeling the pain, experiencing this pain themselves. That is how most companies have started, whether that's Ikea or it's Uber or it's any company, really. And then you could say empathy is really, really closely linked with the company and the people being employed in the company. But as a company grows, the company want to protect what it has. It want to protect its assets. It don't want to be sued. It, it don't want to have people stealing their insights. So they create all these rules and all these regulations. And with that comes all this red tape. So there's a direct correlation between the age of a company and the degree of bureaucracy, the size of a company, but also the size of a, a country and whether that country have rules, which is driven by lawyers a lot, which like the cases in the United States, where everyone is petrified of being sued. And because of that, the companies have even more red tape. So there's multiple factors. But I'll tell you one interesting thing. We know we have something we call the bureaucracy index, and we know on average the bureaucracy index among larger companies in the United States is 65%. Now, 100% basically means that 100% of the time is used on bureaucracy. 65% means that 65% of the entire time you spend working is spent on nothing. Basically, you only are productive for 35% of your time. In Europe, it's slightly lower, it's around 52%. But it still gives you an idea of more than half of the time is basically wasted. 50 to 65% of your time at work is wasted. It's spent doing nothing. It makes you wonder that if people, if leaders are worried about people at home watching Netflix, like I advise the people to do, why bring people back to work? Because it's just as bad in the office, if not worse. I don't know about you, Lee, but if I work in an office, I get so distracted. People go, got a cup of tea? Oh, we're going to go in a meeting. And I'm like, oh, I've got nothing done today. You sit down, you put your headphones on at home, you get two or three hours work done, like Cal Newport calls deep work. You get that done and you feel like you just had a much better day, don't you? Mm-hmm. Couldn't agree more. Now, Martin went on to explain that organizations with the best of intentions can suffer from this common sense crisis, especially if they operate in an industry where it's got lots of red tape and bureaucracy. Red tape breeds red tape. Well, I think that during COVID-19, there was a very, very strong indication of how bureaucracy just was lost in many organizations. One example would be Lufthansa. The Lufthansa Group was one of the largest airline groups in Europe and in the world, for that sake. Um, wanted to follow the regulations about COVID spread. 
So what they decided to do was to create these rules, which are wonderful that when you disembark from the plane, they do it one zone at a time. So first, the first three rows and the second lot of rows and so forth. And these people will disembark out of the plane, you know, basically six passengers at a time with a nice distance. They will go down the staircase, down on the tarmac, straight into a bus. Okay, like it would be like this big jar, jars, you know, with a big mouth, just eating all these small sardines, right? Going straight into this huge bus, and it would be packed with everyone. So much so that the sign behind you saying you have to keep one and a half meters distance or six feet distance, you couldn't even see the sign because everyone would be standing like that. That is a classic example, and in particular Lufthansa, but also many companies in the airline industry had great struggles managing this and are still lost in bureaucracy to a great degree. When I spoke to them at Lufthansa and I said to them, hey, why do you do it? They said, well, actually, one of our airline companies are doing it in the perfect way. I said, why don't you learn from it? They said, we're paralyzed. We just can't do it. Uh, you will notice that industries which are driven by compliance a lot also is suffering a lot from that. And that is banks, insurance companies, the medical sector travel where they're so where life and death quite often is at play or where a lot of money is at play so we've heard what corporate bullshit is and the types of organization industries that can be impacted but the truth is corporate bullshit can exist in any organization in any environment where people come together so even smaller businesses can be affected. I have my own personal experience. So when I was a service delivery manager for the a Department of Work and Pensions contract in the UK, I was asked to consult on the setup of a new contract in the southeast of England. The leadership team were really struggling with the logistics when it came to reimbursing the travel of participants. So basically we'd support people either in terms of training courses or work experience placements who were claiming benefits, looking for work. So it was important that we reimburse that travel for them and on a weekly basis people can't afford to wait a month before they get that that travel money back so I was listening in this meeting about how they would give the bus tickets and the petted cash to the host of the placements who weren't employed by the organization that they'd need to sign some sort of form to say they understood the um, accountability of it and what they're responsible for they'd then need to fill in another team another form for the finance team so they could get paid that would also require their bank details some form of id and then they need to reconcile their petty cash and bus tickets on a monthly basis to show where they'd gone they'd then have to get that special delivery because it would contain customer details to the contract manager in a separate location who would then have to send it special delivery again to the finance team in a different location. So they finalize this very convoluted process and the MD turns to me and says, Liam, what do you think? Will this solution work? And I was like, sure, in principle, but can I ask a really stupid question? Why can't the placement officers who see the customers once a week hand out the travel reimbursements? Silence, open mouths, and then howls of laughter from the MD who just turned to me and said, Leanne, that's why you're here. Is it because I had a great idea? No, it was because I was removed enough. I wasn't in the weeds of the setup of this contract. I was coming from a, an, an objective, more outside point of view. I think this is a problem with corporate bullshit. You know, often we're so involved in the day to day. We're so involved with this is just how things are we don't always have the time nor the the clarity and patience to stand back and go is this best is this best solution or is this bordering on corporate bullshit so that was my experience even a small company of corporate bullshit so martin comes up with this idea of how to audit for common sense which is our part two of the episode so the key thing here is how are you actually looking for this bullshit Martin explains that everyone can fall into this trap and even him, a spring clean, can be the solution. Yeah, yeah, first of all, I think you need to do a spring cleaning, metaphorically speaking, of your daily life. Um, and the question is when you did it the last time. Um, I didn't do it for a long time, I have to admit, but I do do it at certain points of time. And spring cleaning means that you basically can categorize your daily life and work into four different pockets. One is stuff you do, which you're really good at. One is stuff you do where you actually could be better 
or it could be more productive or more relevant. One bucket is stuff you should just remove. It's a waste of time. And one is, let me think about it. If you take and do an inventory check of the way you use your time, you'd be very surprised that not everything is jumping into the first and the second pocket. There'll be a lot of stuff which doesn't fit into those, which are going into bucket three and bucket four. Uh, a private example, uh, until about a year ago, I actually watched too much YouTube videos. And don't ask me what I was watching. I have no idea about it. It probably was cats jumping up and down or something, right? But the reality was that I was probably burning one and a half to two hours every day. Um, so I learned that by doing timesheets. And those timesheets helped me to not just look at my consumption of YouTube videos, but also unnecessary meetings, unnecessary stuff, which was just filling my diary, either because I was polite or because I never thought about it was wasting my time. Um, in the case of YouTube, by the way, I deleted all my cookies on YouTube and suddenly I would find the most irritating, boring videos pop up in my feed and I would never watch YouTube again, literally. Um, and I think this is my first advice. Do an inventory check, do a, a spring cleanup and look at those things which basically saying, hey, you have to improve it or you have to get rid of it. If you do it the right way, you will notice that around 30% of your time is in one way or another either wasted or could be optimized. That will free you up with other stuff. Martin says that once you've done your own spring clean, then go and help your employees or your teams with their spring clean. I think a lot of leaders assume that that if they want to implement this big change, there's enough time that their team and their organization and the people have enough time to implement this. They just don't. You need to start with any kind of change by giving them time back so that they can, they do have the time to make the changes you want. Well, you have to, when you make a change happening in an organization, you cannot assume that everyone has time to adopt your wonderful ideas of being more customer focused. And that is the general assumption and the general mistakes among corporates and corporates going through changes when they're transforming for the better. One assumes that person X sitting in department Y uh, can take aside one third of his or her time and change everything. Can't because we are inundated with, and we feel overwhelmed with work every day. We never have this little time available and we've never been this busy. So the first thing you do is to free people up for time. Go through that inventory check, you go through that spring cleaning, or you use other methods to do it. You remove things from people's desk so they actually can breathe again. And once you do that, you put them in the shoes of consumers and have them experience what the reality looks like. Once you do that, you identify what we call the low-hanging fruit. That is one initiative, a small initiative you can implement straight away, and you most likely will see a result within a week or two. That you rest for 90 days. Now, after 90 days, you look yourself in the mirror and you ask yourself, did it work? And what impact did it have on the organization? And you're highly likely to learn three things. One is, certainly people are more motivated because you're actually giving them time they needed in order to do changes they actually wanted to do, but never were able to do. Two, the customer probably will like you more. They'll start to smile more and they'll say, gosh, what happened here? And three, you actually will start to have evidence it pays off. And what we learned by setting up ministries of common sense across the world is that the money you earn, you actually split in two. You earn some money, so 50% of those, you take back to that division or that function was now starting to earn money from cleaning up all the mess they made. And then other 50% uh, you give back to other people in the organization to get them going. So it's kind of a donation. And that means this is actually funding itself. Martin went on to explain who should be responsible for this process, advising that that will really depend on the type and size of the organization. Well, it's a really good question. And the answer is, I actually don't know. Um, because it depends very much on what type of organization is, the size of the organization, and uh, what industry it works in. Um, if it's a very small organization, it's pretty obvious it's the owner which is doing it because the owner most likely will have a, a finger in every pie and therefore also have respect in every function or division, whatever it is you have if you're a small company. Um, the problem is that there is no such thing as a culture person. And if there is a culture person, 
and then you'll notice that that function do not have enough power to make changes across the operation side, the legal side, the customer experience side, the marketing side, whatever it is. Uh, and that's the reason why there is no one person you could go to. What you can do, however, is start with the owner, start with the CEO, and create a, a task force where you have a small group of four people, each of them responsible for various areas, collaborate in order to create a change through the organization as a team rather than as a one-man show. Because as soon as it becomes a one-man show, you can't do it. And you can't do it because quite often this is interlinked in organization across multiple different functions. You just can't lift it yourself. You need to have the support and involvement and the passion from everyone, right? Now, this next bit I think is really cool and something I wouldn't have thought of if we hadn't gone through this book and heard from Martin. He says that once you've done your own sprinkling, once you've done your employees, you should concentrate on your customers. You should ask them. Speaking to your customers and learning how they experience your product or service is absolute gold when it comes to identifying corporate bullshit. Martin's got some more great examples. Well, I think a very good way of indicating if this is this the case or not is basically to, um, to take the seat and see the world through the consumer's point of view. An example I'm writing about in, in my book, The Minister of Common Sense, is when I was in Miami watching television and um, I had this highly complex remote control, which basically had two numerical notepads and it had two off buttons and two on buttons. And I remember I had to watch this television and I couldn't switch it on because it was just so complex. Anyway, after five minutes, I succeeded. I watched television for 10 minutes, tried to switch it off. But when I clicked the first off button, the light in the room dimmed in kind of a moody sexy way. And when I clicked the second off button, the air conditioning system switched off, but the television was still running. Um, so I had to have my butt in the air, unplug the whole thing. It was kind of a running. And that's really my story, except that two or three months later, I'm flying from Miami to JFK and I'm sitting next to this guy and uh, he's, um, we had small talk a little bit and, and he asked me where I'm from and I tell him I'm from Lindstrom Company and we're transforming organizations and building cultures and, he, and I ask him, where are you from? And he says he's from this company and I, sorry for, for, for swearing here, I said, what the heck went wrong with you guys? Because that was that remote control I'd been fiddling around with two months prior, that was him working and developing that remote control. So he sat there like a deer in the headlight, looked at me, and of course, could not understand a thing. And I pulled out my PowerPoint and explained this whole thing. And he said to me, listen, this was very smart of us doing it because we had an internal conflict. We had one department responsible for TV or another one for Netflix, a third one from audio streaming. Then we had the recording department. And all these ones were fighting for the real estate, so the space on the remote control. And I... I decided to say, well, why don't we split into two zones? So one zone is owned by the TV people, one is by Netflix, one is by the recording. And I said, that means you have two numerical notepads, right? And you have two off buttons and two on buttons. Yeah, he said, but do you know what the good news he said was? It actually means that we know exactly what our roles and responsibilities are in our company. And I said, yeah. And it means I can't even switch off your remote control. This is a story about how there's disconnect between seeing the world from inside out and seeing the world from outside in. And it's a little bit like, metaphorically speaking, a bridge. If you see a little crack on the outside of the bridge, you can be pretty sure the entire foundation is in jeopardy. That foundation is what I experienced from a remote control point of view. So the best thing you can do as a CEO or as an owner or a senior executive is to spend time with the consumer and listen to what they experience, go out shopping with them, buy stuff online with them, go to the restaurant or the customer service department or whatever it is. I mean, a very big supermarket team we're working for right now is open until 11 o'clock around the world, opens up at seven in the morning. It's open every single day, yet the call center closes down at five o'clock every day and is closed during the weekends. So whenever there's a complaint going on in the store, they can't even say, well, call the call center, but they have too few staff to actually handle the complaint in the store. So we have a limbo of two days, up to two days. That is the lack of common sense. So you need to feel that pain of the consumers. 
And once you do that, well, then you the ball is rolling. Oh, of course, no. Sometimes companies come to us and I, and they have us measuring the bureaucracy index, and then we go out and measure that by observing the entire culture and figure out how much time people are spending on bureaucracy. Give them the number, benchmark against other companies, and quite often people fall off the chair because they realize they're wasting two thirds of the everyone's time internally. Corporate bullshit can be identified easily by how much time you spend on something. So assessing your time, your team's time, your customer's time um, are fundamental steps to auditing your business for this corporate bullshit. And you can reintroduce some common sense once you find that. How much time do you think you're actually wasting due to red tape or bad excuses or worse? We've always done it this way, so we can't do it any other way. I think that's such a good thing, isn't it? If, if you or anyone else has ever uttered in your business, when someone asks, why do you, why do, you do it that way? That's just the way we do it. Smells like corporate bullshit's me. Mm-hmm. You know, often when we work with clients, one of the biggest strains on employee experience and well-being we'll identify is workload. So Al said one of the biggest gifts you can give your employees back is is time. When we feed this back to clients, they'll often smile, roll their eyes and go, yeah, but you know, that's SME life. Maybe. But unless you've gone through this process, you've spoke to your team, you've spoke to your customers, you've audited for red tape and corporate bullshit, then that's a bad excuse. Meetings, we all know this, meetings, usually you put half an hour in the diary. So you go, well, I have to have half an hour. This is just ridiculous. Other examples, for example, you could just make sure you don't have high value people working on low value tasks. Why should the head of sales be doing all of the admin for the sales when you can just get someone to come in and do that and free up that hour? I think a great example of this is the four hour work week where you have to find out what high value tasks people need to be doing and take away all the other stuff. The greatest gift we can give our employees back is time. And as we've heard, they're also going to be more open to change and growth when they've got the time to think about it. But you might be saying, Leanne, what if I'm in an industry that is heavily regulated? Red tape is simply part of what we do. Well, as Martin explains, this excuse might actually be more reflective of a business owner's not knowing how to break the cycle. I think the upside, if there is an upside, that these companies rarely do extremely big mistakes where they burn their fingers, meaning they mess it up legally and receive huge lawsuits. But the problem is that as you have so much red tape wrapped around you, you are not very nimble. You're very slow. You're very slow at adopting innovation, adopting a behavioral change among the consumers and the customers. You're very slow at writing or reading the writing on the wall in terms of my culture have a serious problem. So the downside is much greater than the upside. And the upside, you could say, is very temporary. In fact, I would claim that quite often the operation succeeded, but the patient died. And that is, I think, the dilemma organizations kind of increasingly are aware of now they just don't know how to break that catch 22. Martin's got a great story about Swiss International Airlines. Well, Swiss International Airlines, like any other airline companies out there, um, is driven by compliance. I mean, if a plane crashes, a lot of people die. And that could be due to an instance of neglect or where you simply want us not following rules and guidelines and regulations. So I don't need to tell you <laughs> that when you sit in meetings and people are generating great ideas or thoughts, the first red card anyone can raise in a meeting like that is, well, wouldn't that be dangerous? Are we not repeating that crash we had in 1985? Uh, and that's exactly what happened inside Swiss. So when we began the journey with them, um, the first thing I did was to act as a employee in the cloud serving passengers to understand how passengers are interacting with the cabin crew. And through this process, I realized that um, when you board a plane and maybe you are a connecting passenger and you've had a dreadful trip prior to boarding Swiss International Airlines, let's say your lock has disappeared, you missed two connections, uh, you were sitting on the tarmac for six hours, whatever you will be in a certain mood and that mood may not be delightful. 
But guess what? You bought the plane. Now there's a new crew on board on this plane, and they have no idea about what mood you're in. So you're sitting there at the seat. You're now flying from Los Angeles to Zurich, let's say. And as you are up in the cruising heights, uh, you switch on your screen only to realize the whole screen is broken down. So now you have to sit there for 12 and a half hour, look into a black screen. Now, if you've had that prior experience, you will be, so to speak, a ticking bomb. And now the cabin crew comes down to you, complain furiously. You try to be slightly polite. You're jet lagged on top of it. It doesn't make it better. And of course, the cabin crew should be at this stage able to say, well, I'm really sorry. Well, they actually are, but the problem is they can't do more than saying, I'm sorry. At that stage, they basically say, I'm really, really sorry about this. Here's a custom complaint form. If you fill that out, we'll get back to you within the next seven to nine weeks, which really was the case. So, of course, at this stage, you have seven to nine weeks to basically abuse Swiss International Airlines on every possible social media channel just to destroy that bloody airline company, right? And that was really the case. So what I realized through this process was when you when you look at the, the whole procedure, why could we take that responsibility up in the cloud? One of the things I discovered was that an average customer complaint uh, cost around $81 to handle. And that is without the compensation. That's just the ground handling. So we said, well, why don't we change that? Why don't we instead say, well, let's use those $81 for compensation and give the power to the cabin crew. And that's exactly what we did. We gave them a palette of complaint tools they could use, and, and we gave them the option to react immediately. And as a co consequence of that, that was really interesting, we learned three things. We learned, first of all, the customers loved it, the passengers loved it, because they were listened to, taken care of, and it was sold straight away. Yes, maybe they didn't get the TV screen, but they got free Wi-Fi on the whole sector, plus they got an upgrade voucher for next time, plus they got free chocolate, plus they got free champagne, plus they got... And it was so much that people say, oh, that's fine. Okay, I get it. It's bad, but not that bad. The second thing was happened was uh, that they actually saved money, believe it or not actually save money by changing it because we could just use the, the the handling money and we didn't have to give compensation money. But the third thing was even more interesting. We learned that the purpose of the cabin crew increased because suddenly they were given a mandate to actually be what they signed up for the first time they got their job. And this is a good example about how you empower people in the cloud or in any parts of organization by looking at things through a Ministry of Common Sense lens, where you basically ask yourself, why haven't we done that? And in the case of Swiss International Airlines, there were all sorts of different internal excuses. But when you peel the onion, you realize by just saying why, you realize at some stage there is more, there's no more answers. It's like, I don't know. We should we should change it, and that's what we did there. There, and I think that's what most companies should do. But quite often they give up very quickly because we're busy. We sit on teams. We have to move on. And guess what? I'm not even paid for it. I'm not compensated for it. So why should I bother, right? So as we've said before, values are words on a wall. Purpose is where your people will live and breathe those values in everyday working life. Purpose is what happens when values are embedded in operations, in working behaviours. It's how we do things around here. Yeah. Well, it sounds fluffy. And I didn't believe in purpose until I think 10 years ago. Um. And I think the reason why I didn't believe in purpose was because quite often we would have a vision statement in the reception uh, hanging up there, a bit of dust on top of it. Or we we would um, we would look at the annual report and we'll start with some vision or some purpose statement. And it would ring hollow. You would feel it would be sort of a piece of makeup put on top of something like veneer. But what happens is that Generation C or Z are looking at their parents now, and their parents are my age. And they'll look at the gray hair. They'll look at how it's a worn down, worn out uh, generation who's been working the whole life, striving towards getting a higher title, more power, earning more money. And they would have looked at their degree of depression and anxiety. And they would have said to themselves, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be like my dad. 
or my mom or my parents. And that's where we see this generation C now. They are increasingly saying to themselves, I want to go against that. In fact, I don't want to collect assets like they did. The more I collect, the more happy I am, meaning consumption. I want to collect memories and experiences instead. I want to rent things. Um, if companies do not take that into account and they place you or anyone of Generation C or Z in front of a screen and now they have to hammer away eight to 10 hours where 65% is bureaucracy, you can be pretty sure the loyalty is basically zero and the new employer out there is just a link away. So what I think is really important for organizations is to build a purpose into it, which is fundamentally true and which resonates with this generation. And if you can do that, if you go to work and you're not just doing it because you're earning money, but you're doing it because you change the world a little bit, you change people's happiness level a little bit, you make people more happy or more content, then I think you will attract a lot of people. And you better get going with this because this is just the beginning. I fundamentally believe that companies in the future cannot survive if they're not supporting the environment, if they're not supporting equality, if they're not having a purpose, if those factors are not ticked. There would be all dinosaurs just fading away slowly. Another aspect of leadership behaviour and culture that is critical to eliminating corporate bullshit and building a ministry of common sense is empathy. But what it comes down to is that you need to build a culture where empathy is really driving the way you interact with the surroundings. Remember, empathy is the ability to put yourself in the shoes of another person and feel what that person is feeling. And this is really interesting because common sense is almost the same. It is your ability to see some something from a perspective, right? From another person's of view, from a common point of view. So there's a direct collision between common sense and empathy. Um, so basically what it means is if you don't have empathy in an organization, you actually don't have common sense. Um, so if you go into uh, the medical space, for example, where it's highly regulated, one of the things we worked a lot with uh, is to find out how can you infuse common sense into the everyday lives of patients, into healthcare providers, into whatever it is. And I'll give you one example out of many, but one example is uh, one of the largest respiratory disease uh, pharmaceutical companies in the world based out of Italy. And um, they have been around for nearly 100 years and they wanted to be more customer focused. So I said to them, when did you last spend time with your patients? And they said, never. I said, really? For 100 years, you haven't? That's true. We couldn't do it because of compliance. Anyway, we persuaded them to do it. And I end up in a home of a 28-year-old uh, lady. And she had asthma her entire life. And uh, I asked her one of these questions, which later on shown to be profound. I said to her, you've had asthma your entire life. How did it feel like to have asthma as a child? And she started to cry. And she told me this very touching story about how she was bullied in school. She had no friends. She was ditched from parties. She was a disgrace for human mankind. This is me quoting her. So she was very impacted by it. I said, listen, when I look at you today, it, you come across as having a lot of confidence. Why is that happening? And she pulls out a handbag and out of a handbag, she kind of pulls out a straw. I said, this is my secret. So what do you mean? Well, she said, whenever I... Um, meet someone new, a new colleague, a new friend, whatever it is, I always give them this straw. And then I ask them to hold themselves for the nose and breathe through the straw for one minute. And after one minute, they will exactly know how I feel as a person. So I took that idea and uh, I had the board doing the same. And after 30 seconds, one guy spits out the straw. He said, this is the most ridiculous thing ever. Who can possibly live like this? And I said to him, that is how your patients live every minute of their entire life, and they're paying you salary. And if you could hear a penny drop, you would have heard it. And this is really the first step towards establishing a sense of empathy, because as a consequence of that, we developed an onboarding kit to all new employees where they actually received a straw, they had to breathe through the straw. And um, we developed this to build it into marketing, into R&D, into operation. So literally, empathy took a centerpiece of everything 
uh, they're doing today. And with that, the organization slowly changed around. So my experience is it's possible to do in an organization which is compliance driven, but your tool have to be different and empathy quite often is a powerful tool. I am quickly interrupting this phenomenal podcast to recommend another phenomenal podcast, Nudge. We love Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew, a true gent. It is, of course, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. But that is not the only reason we're recommending it, is it, Al? No, it's not. No, we've recommended it to lots of people. If you look at any of our YouTube comments, it won't take you long, there's about 20 of them, <laughs> then you'll see that we recommend Phil uh, to anyone who likes our pod. Well, on Nudge, you're going to learn simple evidence-backed tips. It's going to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, and grow a business. Oh, and it's the UK's fastest growing business podcast. For now. For now, Phil, we're coming for you, buddy. <laughs> if you loved hearing Rory Sutherland from Ogilvy on our show back in episode 83, then Phil's latest episode has Rory on again talking about McDonald's, smoking, and why the pension system is broken. I suppose we should say that actually Rory's been on a couple of times on to nudge. It's not that uh, Phil's seen what we've done and gone, I'll have Rory. So I think it's important yeah, for no, us to Yeah, no, we say copied. That. We copied Phil. Anyway, listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. As Martin explains in his book, empathy is in short supply, especially post-pandemic. Many of us are experiencing compassion fatigue, you know, the physical, emotional, psychological impact of helping others. And research from the University of Michigan has also found empathy to be in decline. So this is a study that Martin quotes in his book, looking at 14,000 college students between 1980 and 2010. They found a significant decrease in empathic concern and perspective taking. And perhaps controversially, the research concluded, and I'll quote, a millennial mixture of video games, social media, reality, reality TV and hyper competition have left young people self-involved, shallow and unfettered in their individualism and ambition. Ooh. I told you, I've said this before, before Gen Z came along, the millennials were the devil. Martin quotes his research in his book and shares his belief that Anthony has declined even further since 2010. I asked, why does he feel this is such a big problem? Well, it is a problem for multiple reasons. And one of them is when you remember the correlation between empathy and um, common sense. Um, we live in a world where we don't look each other in the eyes as much as we did in the past, whether I'm on the phone, so you don't see people on the street, or right now I don't see you in the eyes and you don't see me in the eyes, really. I'm looking at a lens. Um, so we're losing eye contact. And eye contact in meetings is a buffer. So when you sit in a meeting and you attend people and you come up with a crazy idea, there's no way you can gather the feeling of if people like it or not, if it's in a Teams meeting. If you just pause for five seconds, the first thing people will say is, you're on mute, unmute. So we can't even think, we can't even reflect. People would say introvert can't even attend because there wouldn't be like a machine gun talking, right? So empathy is slowly declining and we've never seen such a big decline as we saw during COVID-19 but even before you would have noticed that one experiment done over 10 years showed a decline among uh, generation C of 65 percent and so empathy the ability to feel with other people is disappearing we built walls we survive and thrive in small bubbles which are self-fulfilling prophecies and so that directly correlates with me working in large organizations where I basically do not have an interest in helping other people when it comes to empathy. I dig down in my little silo. I do my work. I do it with producing a lot of PowerPoints and a lot of bureaucracy. And then I move on. There is no feeling of I had to help that person. Let's stick together. Let's create a teamwork because you can hardly do it in a digital format. So yes, it is in a fast decline and it probably will continue being in a decline for 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 many years to come i would say controversially martin believes that remote work isn't always brilliant it could have a detrimental impact on our kind of what he calls the interpersonal sensitivity so leanne asked him where do you stand on this whole debate debate of 2023 can remote and hybrid work work i'm pretty sure you tried sometimes you have a good girlfriend or boyfriend which you haven't seen for some time 
and uh, then you meet up and when you're together you say to yourself wow i just missed this i completely forgot how it was to be together together with him and her that is an emotional muscle that muscle memory is like water in a glass deteriorating or evaporating over time we forget the importance of the human interaction we forget about that wow feeling when we go to a festival or concert or we just hang around with friends without phones being the centerpiece. We have the same problem in organizations. We forget about the importance of human interaction and basically create a one-off rule which says, well, everything has to be happening online. There's no travel anymore. We can be productive. But that leads me to the second problem. The second problem is we don't have that emotional buffer. That means that there's certain things online is really good at online is powerful when it comes to status meetings for you sort of revealing how far you were as a problem a very rational conversation but this media is really really bad when it comes to ideation or when it comes to consensus seeking uh, or it comes to very emotional conversation whether you have to hire promote or coach a person so you have strength and you have weaknesses so you might think that means oh well martin's 100 percent bullish on office work well, it's not exactly. See, Martin emphasizes there's a need for individuality, compromise, and potentially hybrid working. And I think what organizations have to come to realize is you can't just say one size fits all. You have to say, if you want to be creative, if you want to use the right side of your brain for certain purposes, then you schedule things in an in-person meeting. If you want to create an amazing culture, is an in-person meeting. If you want to do status meetings, it's a rational exchange of information or education, you can use the online channel. And then you can mix it. And of course, that's extremely tricky if you have a bunch of women which got used to working from home because they have the kids at home and that's actually pretty convenient. And I understand that. Then suddenly they will say, well, I don't want to go to work at all. But I have to say, we need to understand just like you are using different skills at work. You no, know, some skills maybe you're really good at writing. Others are you good at calculating. Some are good at negotiation. Some are good at presentation techniques. You need to also be aware of that each of those skills are amplified through different channels. And you can't just say, no, I don't want to do it. You have to say, okay, if I want to utilize my creative skills or culture skills, I also need to suffer a little bit with um, with being present. And it's not just women. It's men as well. It's young people. It's lots of different groups was have become somewhat addicted to the idea of we can do a nine to five in front of a screen. You also have to remember, this is the last point, when we don't interact with people where they're suffering a lot, we don't know it, we can't feel it, but subconsciously we know today that the majority of the way we work and the reason why we live longer is because of human interaction. That's the number one and number two reason why we live longer is when we have a sense of belonging and a purpose in life. Uh, if we take smoking or alcohol consumption or eating unhealthy, it's number seven, eight, and nine on the global top 10. So when you sit behind a screen, you feel you're interacting with other people, but actually that physical proximity, the tactile sensation is not stimulated. So there's multiple factors which you have to be aware of that it may seem on a short period, in a short period of time, being very convenient to do stuff at home. But you really have to understand it has to be a combination of both sides to make the full picture complete, right? Martin does make the point in his book that a lack of common sense and an abundance of corporate bullshit could be making remote work or hybrid work more difficult. And the recent research that's come out in the last couple of years has shown that to be the case. If we look at things like employee engagement and well-being, remote work acts as what we call a moderator. So if employee engagement is high, remote work will work really well. If employee engagement is low, remote work is really, really difficult. This can all be summed up by being intentional. And Martin also begs his readers to remember that not everything has to be a meeting. Ask yourself, what is the goal of this interaction? Is a meeting the best or most effective way to achieve that goal? Not everything needs to be a meeting. Martin's got this great idea that if you are remote working, it helps then you can separate your home and your work life by getting in and back out of the right mindset. Make sure when you are jumping on Teams or Zoom meetings that you first of all are transferring yourself from one mindset to another. 
Um, you trotted yourself when you go to work in the old days. You leave your apartment or your house. You will sit in the car. And when we didn't have the phones, we would listen to the music, to the radio. We'll look at the landscape. We'll look at people passing by. And we would basically kind of synchronize into another mindset, right? Um, that mindset is extraordinarily important for you to jump into. We call that enclosed cognition. And enclosed cognition is really born out of the idea that some scientists gave a bunch of people lab coats and above each of the lab coats, identical looking, by the way, there'll be one sign saying doctor, the other set of lab coats, it would say dentist, and the third one, there wouldn't be a sign above. When they put on the doctor's lab coat, they would answer questions faster, have fewer errors, and the self-esteem went up. The dentist, a little bit more than average, and the one without sign wouldn't have an impact. And that's calling closed cognition. And in close cognition is really what we do when we go to the theater and dress up or I put on my fancy watch or whatever we do. It changes our self-esteem. It changes our mindset. So my second advice beside the spring cleanup is for you to do transitions. So when you go to work, you leave your home, you walk around the apartment block, as silly as it sounds, go back into that room, do your work. And once you've done your work, you walk around the whole block to reset your mind and go into to the room again. That will help your brain to synchronize. So these are two pieces of advice, a lot of advice I could give you, but hopefully that gives you a sense of that our brain is a very fine-tuned mechanism, which is not like a, a machine which can just turn on and off. It has to be adopted to the surroundings and the new change of our work environment. And sometimes you really take it for granted that it will work, but we should be careful doing that because it will impact our mood, our self-esteem, how productive we are, and even how we look and interact with other people. Yeah, I mean, I think that the remote hybrid in-office debate is going to rage on for a good while yet. There are pros and cons to each. There are benefits and drawbacks to each. And what works is, is likely going to depend on the individual and on their individual preferences and individual circumstances. But what we do know is that the only way is forward. There is no way of going back to the office setup, the traditional office setup that we had pre-pandemic. The genie is out of the bottle. We have to think about work in an entirely new way that will incorporate remote work into it. So again, I think, you know, it's about intention when it comes to these new ways of working. And to quote our incredible guest today, Martin, you can either observe the future or influence it. Absolutely love, love, love that quote. So let's finish up with a few final words from Martin about how you implement a Ministry of Common Sense in your own business. You have to remember that Rome was not built in one day. Or to use another metaphor, when Mother Teresa started to change a revolution or Martin Luther King did it or Gandhi did it, Gandhi took one village at a time and he walked from one village to another and he spread the word. And the word were gathering a momentum, what we call a movement, and the moving movement became bigger and bigger, and suddenly it changed India and it changed the world. This is important to have in mind when you do transformations of organizations and of cultures. You cannot change an organization with, let's say, 100,000 staff overnight. You have to start in the small and build small movements and let those movements grow in an organic way and have people recruit people, recruit people based on energy, based on passion, based on hope, and based on evidence. And if you create small pilot studies like what we did with Swiss International Airlines or with Standard Charter Bank or any of these many companies, then this function as evidence to show to the world it is possible. Because you have to remember a lot of people, a lot of employees have given up. They're basically saying, oh, here we go, and then project Y. Well, I don't understand why and I will be doing it. Project How, Project Transformation, Project 2030, all these different initiatives with a new CEO was this, this is the moment we're going to change it to make our company the best in the world. What people have been hurt so many times, the cry wolf has really taken so much power that people have been more or less numb. And as they become numb, they don't trust any messages. So the only way you can make people trust a message is to prove it. And that's where you do small interventions, what I call 90-day interventions, small interventions, which immediately can be measured. They don't need a lot of red tape to be removed. 
and then you can celebrate the success after they've succeeded. Then you create a movement around it and you recruit more people, which is believers. They do the same experiment and you recruit more and suddenly you change an organization. So don't be fooled by changing half a million or a million staff for that sake of overnight. Start with hundreds, then go to 200, then go to 500, then thousands of both, right? And he said he's never going to underestimate the power of culture again. Well, it's been a hit and a miss. It's been a hit in terms of I come up with, I think, great ideas. I was asked many years ago to reinvent the Happy Meal for McDonald's globally with the former, former, former CEO. Uh, yet when we came up with the most wonderful uh, concept, which were healthy, the machinery just couldn't handle it. And the idea drowned and ended up with an apple in a Happy Meal. Uh, sliced apple though. Um, and I think what I realized there was it's not just a matter about coming up with great ideas and concepts. You need to work with the immune system, as I call it, so the defense mechanism for change. So ideas will only survive if you're good at navigating it. As Warren Buffett once said, and lunch will eat strategy for breakfast, right? Um, and I think, uh, or, you know, <laughs> I think you know what we're talking about here is that the the culture is so powerful that if we do not take that into account from day one, when you are changing organizations, building amazing cultures, doing innovation, then you're losing. You're losing immediately. So I've come to learn and respect that culture is a major ingredient in that cake I'm baking every day for uh, millions of staff, I would say, around the world. And I think that um, if you're not passionate around it, if you can't send energy within the organization, why would people believe in it? I'll tell you one story, it's a sort of a wrap-up story, just to give you a sense of what really motivates me. One of our clients is Lowe's in the United States. And I worked with them for 11 years. And uh, the owner called me 11 years ago and said, Martin, we really would like you and your team to come in and, and help us. Um, because they're close to bankrupt. Um, so we worked with them, we changed the culture. It became by far the most successful supermarket chain in the United States. And about half a year ago, I went to one of the low stores in North Carolina and this elderly man comes up to me crying. He hugs me and he says, you saved my life. And I was kind of baffled because I'd never seen the person before. I didn't know what this was all about. So I said, tell me more. And he said, listen, uh, we are three generations working here. My kids and their kids are working in those and have done that for basically the last 55 years. Had we lost these jobs, our entire family would have been in ruins. You saved our lives. And that, I realized, was much more rewarding than money, fame, or all the books behind me, or whatever it is, because I changed lives, I saved lives. And I think you cannot imagine anything better. And that's the reason why I'm so motivated, because it actually has a purpose. And I think we all need a purpose. Me too. Martin, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. So many good tips, so many great books. If you just go and start with this Ministry of Common Sense, you will love it. It really is. It's such a good book. It might actually be my favorite, my favorite business book that I've read of 2023. Um, it is. It's so get get the audio book as well. It's so funny. It's like a six hour long podcast. It's just <laughs> hilarious and brilliant. So yes, Martin, thank you. We will leave the link to Martin's LinkedIn in the show notes, along with where you can buy the book. Next week, we will be bringing you a very special episode for World Mental Health Day, which is next Tuesday, the 10th of October. And then if you are in London, I think we might have mentioned before, on the 12th, come and see us in London at Mad World Summit, madworldsummit.com. See you next week. Bye-bye.